Hey everyone, thank you for coming to the last day of the summit. We're gonna start by having the panelists, I mean the moderators introduce themselves. So I'm Laura, I'm a sophomore at the University of Michigan and I'm majoring in environmental studies. I was in the sustainability analyst program with Voids over the summer and I currently run their YouTube and podcast channel. Hi everyone, I'm Sophia. I'm a senior at UCLA studying environmental science and I interned at Voids this past summer. So today is the sixth and final day of the Sustainable Food Summit hosted by Voice Dow in collaboration with the UCL Animal Rights Society. This week, Voice has prompted important conversations about different components of our food systems, from fisheries to pesticide use. During today's panel discussion, we will be focusing on regenerative agriculture and ranching and their importance in reversing climate change and habitat degradation. Our first speaker today is John Rulak. John is the founder of the organic superfoods brand Nutiva, and he's also known for his role as executive producer of the documentary Kiss the Ground, which you can all find on Netflix. His passionate hemp advocacy brought him to sue the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, resulting in a historic 2004 victory to keep hemp foods legal. Today, he's an investor and an advisor to various organizations in the Better for You and Planet section, sector. Our second speaker is Seth Itzkan. He is the co-founder and co-director of Soil for Climate. He's also a TEDx speaker who spoke on restoring grasslands and with planned grazing. He's consulted for the Boston Foundation, the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative, and the U.S. Bureau of Census, and his private consultancy is Planning Tech Associates. Before we begin, we'd like to point out that today's panelists will answer any questions you might have during the last 10 to 15 minutes of discussion, so please submit your questions in the Q&A box. Also, if anyone has any questions about Voice Dow or the sustainability analysts, feel free to also put those questions in the Q&A box and Sophia and I will address them at the end. So, all right, let's get started. It would be great if you could both please briefly introduce yourselves and some of the organizations and projects that you are involved with right now. John Rulak, zooming in from Ojai, California. Several of the organizations that I've been working with of late is Great Plains Regeneration, based in the Great Plains region in the, in the U.S., working with farmers and ranchers to regenerate our grasslands and soils and, and using regeneration as a key tool, working with uh, around education and market development. And then also, I recently uh, co-founded Agroforestry Regeneration Communities, or ARC, and we're we're creating regenerative food forests focused in, in Guatemala and in East Africa. And so I'm excited about that. And agroforestry is such a great way for to create food resiliency, increase biodiversity, and, and deal with the coming climate and environmental crisis. Okay, so John, thanks for that introduction. So my name is Seth Itzcan. I'm the co-founder and co-director of Soil for Climate Incorporated. And we advocate for soil restoration as a climate solution. We do that because of the profound potential of soil restoration to hold carbon, but also to mitigate global warming in other ways. It isn't just about carbon. And I recently completed a participation in the United Nations Food Systems Summit, which was a, a, a real great experience. And I'm, I'm honored to have participated in that. And I contributed to a paper on regenerative grazing for the UN Food Systems Summit. So that is part of the proceedings now. And uh, Soil for Climate is active in sort of three main spaces, science, policy, and practice. And science basically boils down to the science of building soil, regenerative, the impacts of, of regenerative grazing and cropping. The practices are how you actually do it, whether with cover crops or holistic plant grazing or agroforestry, the kind of stuff that John is talking about. And then the policy, there's a whole movement now called healthy soils legislation. You could Google that. There's a lot happening in that space. So we try to be a champion, if you will, for in all three of those areas. And our Facebook group has about 24,400 members now. That's sort of our main place is on Facebook to sort of happen that way. And okay, so there you go for the introduction. And it's an honor to be here, thank you. Thank you so much for those introductions. I'm, I'm really excited to learn more about all these projects. So starting with the first question, what role do the soil and agricultural practices play in climate crisis, both as a cause and a solution? 
And in particular, what is the regenerative agriculture? What is regenerative agriculture and what do what roles do grasslands and trees support as regeneration in the soil? And John, we'd love to start with you first. Sure. Well, the, the concept of regeneration is, is pretty simple. Protect and, and enhance natural systems. And for too long, we've, with increasing population, we've been destroying ecosystems, stripping, tilling too much, clear cutting too much, and degrading landscapes. And part of the issue really is that indigenous cultures have always understood some of these principles. They haven't always carried that out, but there's there's been a long history of uh, of taking care of the land and using natural fire uh, to manage lands and and the challenge is is because of a very just kind of being direct here a very kind of racist <clears throat> dominating nature view of the European culture when they came to the Americas <clears throat> and other regions has really caused long term damage. So for an example. We have students who go to college and become city planners, but they don't even are taught how water flows. <clears throat> so we design cities where water is considered a waste and just run it off into the ocean, picking up a lot of contaminants. Whereas uh, if you used nature as, for, as a design tool, <clears throat> you would capture that water, you would slow it, <clears throat> you would spread it, and you would sink it, and we would have more regenerative landscapes. And so after hundreds of kind of years of poor design, we're now seeing massive floods where roads are washed away. In British Columbia, they just had, and it's because we've, we're cutting too many trees. You can still produce wood from the forest, just how you do it. And so Paul Hawken has a new book out called Regeneration, which I encourage people to get, but it's really a mindset. And, and but Seth could probably get into some of the um, technical aspects, especially around grasslands. Um, but with, with agroforestry, we essentially mimic nature. <clears throat> so in forests, there's, you don't have irrigation systems in forests and you don't have fertile, you don't have bears fertilizing with chemical fertilizers, spreading fertilizer around. <clears throat> forests are naturally regenerative. And with agroforestry, we mimic the forest system and, and with uh, merging it with agriculture and production. So for instance, we, we grow trees that produce fertilizer naturally via the form of nitrogen fixing, whereas industrial agriculture and degenerative agriculture purchases you know, synthetic fertilizers made in a factory and ship it there when we can have nature produce it. So uh, basically, humans have been causing global warming for about 10,000 years. This is sort of an important, th th there are several sort of important sort of nuggets, sort of low-hanging cognitive fruit that, that a lot of people don't know that you kind of need to kind of start the conversation with. We've been causing global warming for 10,000 years. This is fairly well established. So <clears throat> just the process of cutting down trees, burning fields, tillage, We've already, we've already held off the next ice age. We should have already been in the next ice age. Glaciers marching down into New York City. So the advent of burning fossil fuels in the last century and a half has just exacerbated the problem, made it much worse, obviously. But the problem was already there in terms of land management. The climate is very sensitive to these things. And so it's a two-pronged approach to, to global warming reversal, not just mitigation, but reversal. The first is sort of, as everyone knows, is we have to stop emitting, okay? And that mostly means fossil fuels, okay? But the second thing is that we have to sequester. There's already what's called the legacy load in the atmosphere. There's already too much carbon in the atmosphere. So if literally today we all stopped burning fossil fuels completely, just went to zero, we're still already past the tipping point. At over 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, it's already too late to stop catastrophic global warming just by reducing fossil fuel burning. So we have to simultaneously and very quickly scale up regeneration. And that 
there's basically sort of three main spaces where that happens. One is in forests, as John has talked about. The other is in wetlands, which are, and he also talked about capturing water. Wetlands are actually a very small percentage of the land area, but they are a large reservoir of soil carbon. The wetland soils is very, very rich in carbon. And then the other is grasslands. And by grasslands, I also sort of mean savanna. There's sort of this large spectrum of ecosystems, which are really most of the continental interiors of the world, most of middle United States, most of middle Asia, almost all of North and South Africa, Northern and Southern Africa and East Africa. If you, if you look at a globe, it's kind of interesting. There's this equatorial region, which is sort of rainforest or even jungle around sort of most of the world. But once you get to sort of the latitudes, both sort of North and South of that, it starts to become drier and more of a sort of a grassland environment. And then obviously there are mountain environments which change things, but that's sort of the basic architecture, if you will, of the ecosystems of the planet. And so all of those systems have to be restored while we simultaneously stop the emissions. Okay, <laughs> there, done. <laughs> I'd, I'd like just to follow up a bit on Seth. You made a lot of good points about the restoration and regeneration. <clears throat> One area that many people don't focus on is oceans. <clears throat> and all that excess carbon, as Seth mentioned over the 10,000 years, has fallen into the oceans. And the oceans are our greatest carbon sink today. <clears throat> and essentially, they are over overtaxed. And as the oceans absorb all that carbon, they become more acidic. And there's a fine balance, the phytoplankton, which supplies the majority of oxygen in the world, these, you know, small zooplankton, you know, creatures. And that's, that's the basis of the entire food chain for the ocean. And as I said, for oxygen, because of the uh, excess carbon, in the ocean, we're losing, we're already lost over 50% of the phytoplankton in the world today has died and it's we're losing one to two percent a year and an example because of that 98 percent of the pacific sardine population has collapsed since 2007 <clears throat> and imagine how much it's dropped compared to 100 years ago so the the key uh issue is how do we take that excess carbon in the oceans and and regeneration through the various systems that seth and i have mentioned is really important and we can also learn to actually grow we can reforce the oceans through through kelp and other plants and that's that's a whole nother area but i just wanted to mention the importance of oceans as well yeah i, I want to second that and, and even apologize if you will for not saying more about it our focus because we're soil for climate really has been on sort of the landed surface area but without doubt the oceans are a major player in this and, and we do need more, you know, more discussion about that as well. Just as a follow-up question, could you please clarify sort of how exactly regenerative practices can store carbon and even reverse climate change? Essentially, um, when you grow living plants and they have the, the living root takes that carbon so the, the fuel for regenerative agriculture, what runs the system <clears throat> is not petrochemicals, which is what degenerative agriculture, but it's carbon. So carbon is the key fuel. <clears throat> so it converts that carbon in, you know, into, into roots and, and then into other, other bacteria and fungi that then hold the carbon. So that carbon then is stored into the so soil and it also serves as a sponge as well. So that's it. it moderates not only the water cycle, but it, it takes that excess carbon and stores it in, in, in the ground through root systems and, and bacteria and fungi. And, and that's the, why soil health is so important. Right, and if I may, I think this would be the, a perfect opportunity for me to, to show a visual. I'm not gonna do a whole PowerPoint presentation, but we did agree that there, that, that there could be just, just one or two visuals to, to help make the point. And I kind of think this would be really the opportune time for it right now. So I'll just show, this slide really speaks volumes. I'm assuming you can see the slide now of the, of the roots with the back. I mean, I have hundreds of slides, of course, but really if you had to cut it down to one, 
this might be the one slide the visual to show. This is your climate solution, or this is a major part of your climate solution. And then getting to the question about regenerative agriculture and soil, well, well, there it is. The, the reason why soil is dark literally is because of the carbon. The, the, the more carbon it has, the darker it gets until like uh, biochar is almost pure carbon. It's, it's like it's charcoal. It's black. Right. So there really is sort of a visual scale. You can literally look at the color of carbon of soil and assess how much carbon is in it. And then you can see that these roots are actually folded at the bottom. They're longer than that. They're nine feet or some of the Texas blue stem is uh, root systems are 15 feet. So there's a profound amount of carbon in here. And if we could restore these systems, it'll be good for everyone. Now, um, now getting to the grazing, everyone knows I'm an advocate for that. Well, that's how these systems get this way. They get this way with the natural grazing of ruminants that evolved over millions of years. And the regenerative grazing practice is just trying to restore that impact, that the, the, the wild ruminant herd impact, which is for most part, completely gone now, almost everywhere. It can be replicated as using domestic ruminants, moving in herds, moving in a way very close to how the natural herds behave and quite different from the typical grazing practice, which is almost sort of random, spread out. And that is a problem. But the animals aren't the problem. Or as we say, it's not the cow, it's the how. The how can be very different and can be very restorative. And in terms of a grassland ecosystem, that's what it needs. The grasses need the grazing. They don't exist without the grazing. If you take the animals away, it turns a desert. So anyway, so I'll, I'll stop with that share now, but I just kind of wanted to put out that out there. So you, you, got, you got that visual. One thing yeah. I just wanted to share, thanks Seth, is that in, in some of the degenerative grazing, there's a lot of annual grasses and they're not as complex as more of a brittle and, uh, system. And when you do the uh, regenerative grazing and move the cattle or the sheep or the buffalo more rapidly, you tend to get more perennials, which have uh, more complex root systems. So perennials are very important in regenerative. It's very important. Whereas our industrial models based on, on, on annuals that just grow one season, moving to perennial systems is very important, both grasslands and, 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 and tree crop. Thank you both for clarifying what regeneration means and exactly how the soil stores carbon. So as John mentioned, there are some regenerative practices that require fewer inputs and have clear environmental benefits. However, conventional agricultural practices are still the norm on most agricultural lands. Why then do farmers and ranchers continue to adopt conventional practices? And what are the greatest barriers to the implementation and normalization of regenerative practices? Well, that's an excellent question. For, first off, agriculture in America and, and Europe is heavily subsidized. So we subsidize degenerative and we penalize regenerative. <clears throat> and it's, that's done through farm policy. It's also lack of access to markets. There's a monopoly system in the Western, like in the US and Europe. And it's also just, it's a mindset that it's something that we've gotten used to since like since World War I of a more of industrial chemical base. So it's learning to, to teach people that, but, and it's also a challenge for markets. So regenerative agriculture takes more labor and initially it can be not quite as profitable the first few years. So who's gonna fund that transition? But over time, regenerative producers have less input costs and, and have excellent yields. But it's, it's both a financial, it's a government policy and it's educational and it's also human dynamic. And thus we are where we are. And I'll, I'll just second what John said. I mean, I mean, the system is subsidized to support industrial agriculture. I mean, I mean, it's, it starts there. That's the whole basis of it. The whole grain industrial ag model is subsidized. And then there's a whole nother layer of insurance 
crop insurance. You can't get insurance policy as a producer unless you're following the program. So it's a double bind for producers. They don't really, they're, they're sort of pinned between these, these, these two walls of, of, of the financial model of industrial agriculture. And to try to break out of it is tough and risky. And so, yeah, where's the safety net for the producers who want to do it the right way? And this is where healthy soils legislation comes in. We're trying to reward people who improve their soil carbon, penalize people who deplete it. And then the, I think the insurance sector is going to play a role here because look at all the flood damage claims and, and, and drought, drought and flood problems. If you can show that you could severely reduce the drought and, and flood insurance exposure, by improving soil carbon. Now you're making the financial case, never even mind the environmental aspects of it. You're making the financial case. And, and I think the insurance industry is gonna play a, a key role here in this eventually. Thank you. Yeah, all of these issues are really interesting how they all interconnect and make regenerative agriculture something more difficult to see on a widespread level. But in response to industrial agriculture's environmental impact and unethical conduct, a lot of concerned individuals are adopting plant-based diets to minimize their individual impact. However, becoming vegetarian or vegan may not necessarily be the best way to reduce one's carbon footprint. So what are your thoughts on diets like veganism and vegetarianism? And is there a better way of addressing one's individual carbon footprint? John, we can start with you again. I think it's important that that both vegetarians or vegans and, and people who also eat meat can follow regenerative practices and, 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 and support regenerative agriculture. <clears throat> That's really important. Somehow, though, we've gotten to this meat is bad, cows are the problem, and let's divide up those, those two type of <clears throat> eaters versus realizing that the real issue is Monsanto and industrial agriculture and, and a racist, ecologically destructive system. <clears throat> One of the ways we've gotten here is that there's been a series of movies from Cowspiracy to What the Health to the latest uh, Eating Away to Extinction, which essentially is takes storytelling where they mix some percentage of truth, which people go, oh, yeah, this is that's true. And then they put in things that aren't true and they brainwashed a lot of people. And, and that's unfortunately a common thing in society. It's whether it's food or medicine or energy or race relations, we've, we've kind of been brainwashed and, and social media has only accelerated that. But the, the idea um, that we've really, really blamed cows and then given a pass to destructive agriculture. So essentially, in my view, as someone who's sold over a billion dollars worth of certified organic vegan foods, <clears throat> plant-based foods, cooking oil, seeds, uh, protein powders, <clears throat> is that Monsanto and Wall Street came up with a playbook 10 years ago. <clears throat> and that playbook was, we are going to fund radical vegan <clears throat> films, views, <clears throat> and, and then start companies and forget about the fact that pesticides are killing biodiversity and and creating starvation and global damage and instead we're going to blame the cow and we're going to be able to just just get rid of the cow and and still produce the same destructive ingredients and have people not pay attention to that so really the opportunity is soil health whether it's plant-based or not and and i'm working i'm supportive of of both options plant-based and meat-based but done in a regenerative manner i'm going to turn it over to seth i think he might have a few opinions on this <laughs> no no i promise to behave for this uh, <laughs> tell us how you uh, really feel listen the answer is in the soil it's really that simple and this is how i get out of these sort of heated debates when i don't want to be in them just focus on the soil are you restoring the soil or not? In most dry land systems that co-evolved with grazing ruminants, those animals are essential for the soil. I mean, they're essential. Without it, it turns to desert. So you can't just do away with it. But are, are things being done poorly? Of course. 
one of the one of the biggest problems with the industrial meat industry is its reliance on annual grains. It's the it's the annual grain agriculture that's destroying everything. It's not the meat. It's the it's the production. And the thing is, the 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 modern version of veganism and vegetarianism doesn't doesn't address the root problem. They're still happy to continue having the entire Midwest in corn and soy and pea, destroying the soil, creating dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico. And it's a disaster. Those areas should all be grassland, all of it. Basically everywhere from a third into the United States to practically up to California should be some type of healthy grassland maintained with grazing. And it shouldn't be soy, corn, pea, or wheat. It should be grasslands. And, and the irony is that I think we could produce even more animal protein in a regenerative method than we are now in the, in the del deleterious method. Now, when people talk about Brazil, well, obviously that's a disaster. Cutting down the rainforest is a disaster and everyone should stand against that. And we certainly do. And, and the, the, again, the irony is that if we were grazing properly, there would be no, there would be no need, need for that. There'd be no world global market for it. And if we had a price on soil carbon and all that stuff. So there are multiple sort of disasters on both extremes. Cutting down the Brazilian rainforests is one example of a disaster. But turning the great American prairie into corn, soy, and wheat is, a, is an equal disaster. Both are wrong. So we need to be restoring ecosystems in a way that produces protein and nutrients and calories for humans. We need to be restorative. And on most of the landed surface of the earth, that's going to involve some type of grace. Thank you so much. I think it's okay. really important for a lot of people to hear about this because mm. a lot of people who've adopted plant-based diets don't really understand the importance of the soil and how their diets aren't necessarily actually restoring the soil. And now I'd like to pivot the, converse, the conversation to some of your individual accomplishments. So this is a question for John. Kiss the Ground is an eye-opening documentary that presents soil as a crucial carbon sink that can reverse global warming through the implementation of regenerative agriculture. What was your vision for the documentary as the executive producer and what impact has the documentary had in terms of prompting changes to conventional agricultural practices? Yeah, thanks for the question. Back in, in 2014, I was involved in a lot of campaigns to get people to not use uh, Roundup and GMOs. Uh, and pesticides. And when I started to learn about this kind of unifying concept or, and, and ecological wisdom of, of regeneration, I've been involved in, in organic farming and sustainable agriculture movement for, for decades. I, after about six months, I looked around and says, why are nobody talking about regenerative agriculture? Why, why is it even at organic farming conferences, they don't talk about soil health? And if climate change is the, the existential crisis of our generation, and, and one of the leading solutions is just being ignored, I literally thought I, I had gone insane, and because and, and everyone around me just was, was not even interested or talking about it. So I decided, let's do a movie and kind of create an idea virus about regenerative agriculture. And that's what we, we set out to do back in 2014 with the filmmakers Josh and Rebecca Tickell and many people all over the world. And um, it's on Netflix and also Vimeo. And, and I think it's educated a lot of people. And we're working on several upcoming films as well as a follow-up around agriculture and regeneration. Yeah, thank you. I know that Sophia and I have both watched the documentary and we both thought it was just great. So we will be sharing the website if you are all in the like, discussion are interested in watching it as well. This next question is for Seth. You have worked firsthand with land, landowners in Zimbabwe to restore their lands through regenerative grazing practices. Aside from the vast benefits to the climate, how have regenerative practices produced positive social change for smallholders in local communities? All right, so, so just to be clear, in Zimbabwe, I, I was a guest of the Africa Center for Holistic Management, an observer and a volunteer. So this was not me taking the lead, I was there to observe. 
but the lead organization there is called the Africa Center for Holistic Management. And so there are so many layers to the benefit, the social, the economic. And let's just talk about wildlife, for example. There, there's just more wildlife on these restored lands, zebra, giraffe, elephant, you know, where are they going to go? <laughs> are they going to go to the, the depleted areas? Or are they going to go to the healthy areas? So it's just the enjoyment of just seeing wildlife come back. And in that itself, there's so many sort of interesting sort of linguistic twists, like this word rewilding. And rewilding is getting tossed out there as sort of like like in the anti-livestock people, they say, oh, well, well, we'll rewild. That, that is how you rewild. They rewilded by using the livestock to restore the system. And, and then the, the wild animals came back. And, and then like in Kenya, so in Kenya, that is actually a program that, that we're in, in a management capacity, working with the Maasai community there. and. There's a huge problem now with what's called an invasive weed. And this is, this is another linguistic little twist, invasive weed, like this is a bad weed and it invaded. But like John said, no one's talking about the fact that the soil has degraded, okay? And so if it's, an inv if it's invading, well, how do you deal with an invasion? It's, it, this is like militaristic language, right? We're, we're militarizing the language around biology. And, and the way you deal with an invasion is to fight it off. And how do you fight it off? Well, with weapons of agriculture, pest herbicides. And so glyphosate, Roundup, is being prescribed now to, to get rid of this weed in Kenya. I mean, what, what joy. The European agrochemical paradigm is now being used to try to eradicate this invasive weed in Kenya. And the reason why it invaded is because the soil was depleted and the whole ecosystem lost its natural biodiversity. Biodiversity is nature's natural immunity. You want a little catchphrase, there's one for you. Biodiversity is nature's natural immunity. A plague of any kind is indication of a lack of biodiversity. Think about it. If you have 40, 400, 4,000 types of, of plant genomes going on, a, a plague is impossible, right? A plague needs some type of monoculture. So anyway, long story short, this uh, getting back to your question about how does it help? Well, the, 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 min the Ministry of Agriculture in Kenya is recommending glyphosate. That's the official recommendation. And so the reality, this now this gets to be a gender issue, is that men manage the livestock and women manage the gardens. That's, that's how the gender issues break down there, 100%. And so an invasive weed is considered a garden. So who's out there spraying the glyphosate? The women. So now you have women out there spraying glyphosate on the invasive species. So now this is a gender justice issue as well, right? And you never could have predicted this. It's only because I saw it with my own eyes. I've been there, I've seen it on, on the Kenya TV. There's a documentary lauding this landowner who just, he just says right to the interviewer, I hired the women. Just, and no one even thinks twice about that. That's just a completely okay thing to say. And he means he hired the women to go out there with hose and cut down the plant and, and, and spray glyphosate on it. That's what, that's what he literally means. And the answer, of course, is just to do regenerative grazing. They should have just brought in the cows, moved them properly, and they would have restored the soil and eradicated the problem. And when I was there, we did that. We, we walked through a patch of this invasive weed, it's called morning glory, that's the common term for it. And we did just that. We just moved the cows back and forth, back and forth over that same area. And we, 
have probably already done more to er eradicate morning glory weed just with some cows and herders than, than literally all of the Ministry of Agriculture for the Department of Kenya. Okay, there's my rant. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think you made a great point about the connotations of the language we use when we speak about agriculture. And it's also really tragic that these environmental burdens have become a gendered issue. So we only have four minutes left until the Q&A. So we want to ask one last quick question to the both of you. So here at Voice, we always do our best to find solutions to issues that everyone can participate in, from college students to professionals such as yourselves. What can people do to support regenerative-based solutions to climate change and environmental issues? I'll take that. <clears throat> what, what I suggest is for people to commit themselves to a continual learning process, whether they're in school or out of school. So continue to learn, spend time in nature, observe nature, set your computer or phone, turn the screen off, go out into nature, um, and then find people uh, who inspire you that you want to learn from and uh, just learning more and uh, take that, take your passion and, and follow your, your interests and and make make a better world because if we don't who will yeah and, and i and i'll just second that this this session itself that we're having right now is a healthy thing to do and and more discussions of this type that aren't like so hot and angry and people attacking each other is really the way to go for me particularly on the diet side i buy products that are either organic, that either have the organic label, or if it's a meat product, I look for pasture-raised, 100% grass-fed. Different stores have different categories, and you don't always know exactly what that means. But you can kind of hope at least it's, it's better. At least it's kind of getting in the right direction. I also know a lot of the producers, and I buy from them directly. So a lot of the Regenerative grazing producers have their own companies. You can order from their website. Some, some are actually in the big supermarkets now. In New England, we have something called Hannaford's. And, and one of my buddies is providing right there in Hannaford's. And he's 100% pasture-raised, managed in a regenerative fashion. You can go out, you can see the land, you can see the animals, you can test the soil. And then you can go in, the, this is a big supermarket called Hannaford's and his product is in there. So just try to purchase in a way that, that there's a positive environmental impact. It doesn't just say vegan or trying to vilify the alternative. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's a really good point. And I'm excited to leave this panel with a little bit more knowledge on how to make a bigger difference in my personal life. So unfortunately we have reached the end of our discussion, but we do have 15 minutes for Seth and John to answer any questions that we have in the Q&A box. So if you have any more, like now's the time to put them in. But the first question asks, in the UK, there's a drive by Chris Packham to rewild land wherever possible. This has been supported by the UK government who provides grants for farmers to alternate crop growth and rewilding strips of farmland. So do you guys think that this is an effective effort and is it happening everywhere else globally? I want to just jump in. I know Seth addressed it. <clears throat> One of the areas of, quote, rewilding, they, they actually brought in grazing animals <clears throat> to graze some of the grass and, and, uh, and accelerate the system. <clears throat> so the, the, there is benefits from rewilding, <clears throat> but also we need to move out of this European kind of man is bad, nature is good, <clears throat> and, and fence out the humans. And nature is involved through predation and through the interaction with people and nature. So I think there's benefits from it, but also we need, we also, it also, nature needs the interaction, whether it's natural fire systems, herding, et cetera. I'll, I'll turn over to Seth, but we don't want to take too long, Seth, because we got a bunch of questions here. Uh, sure. I'll just second what John said. We can, we can go on to the next question. All right. The next question states, can you explain in greater detail why grasslands turn to desert without any animals grazing? Oh, yes. I actually saw that in the question thing. Great question. I have all kinds of slides on that. Uh, we don't really have time to, for those visuals. But basically, it's a coevolution. So ruminants 
and perennial grasses and the soil itself, right? The soil isn't just a byproduct. That's also a very complex ecosystem of millions of little creatures. They're all, they all co-evolved together over the last 30 million years or so. And, and, and these were in sort of seasonal rainfall, semi-arid ecosystems where the ruminant is essential to literally provide the moisture distribution over the land during the dry season. And one of the problems with our current worldview is we basically have a Northern European perennially wet environment worldview. And so all of modern agriculture and grazing mentality is based on this perspective of perennially wet. And so if you sort of leave a system alone, so to speak, it will sort of come back. But in these grassland semi-arid ecosystems, it's not like that. It, it can't just be quote unquote left alone. The animals are what gives it vitality during the long dry season. And so one way or another, the animals have to be there, either in, either in their natural state, of course, these massive herds, or in a, a man-made proxy of that, which is moving domestic herds in a way which has a similar beneficial impact. I just wanted to, to second what Seth was saying and also that, that I was just speaking with a, a startup technology company that Tom Steyer and others have, have funded in, in the San Francisco Bay Area and they're doing remote satellite carbon um, testing and, and uh, monitoring and, and one of their first projects is going to be a regenerative grazing in the Chihuahua Mexico desert where they've restored the grasslands and the biodiversity and the amount of cattle they can um, have per acre has is up like three or four x and the before and after photos are amazing. And that's just an example. <clears throat> and that's gonna be one of the, may well be one of the high profile carbon sequestration products that are sold in the United States by one of the leading companies here. You'll see more of that in the coming year or two. Yeah, thank you for your responses. Our next question is gonna be from Ivana Spinoza, who is one of the co-founders of Boys. She would like to know both of your thoughts on the cultured meats and cultured fish industries. I'll, I'll jump into that. <clears throat> so this word culture uh, and cultured is, is loaded. There's so much misinformation about uh, this plant, this upcoming plant. There's, there's like four different types. We don't have time to get all into all the different types, but <clears throat> you know, kind of have old school veggie, like a Boca burger. <clears throat> and then you had these like kind of a lot of in industrial ingredients from like peas and, and GMO soy, like the beyond impossible. And, and then there's also a new wave where they're taking, and those were cultured, but they, but they were not using synthetic biology, except in, in the case from Possible Burgers, fake blood. But now they're essentially creating a culture using GMOs, sugars, and then like with gene drives and actually just kind of like, it's kind of like a, a soil and green and industrial tanks. And it's, there's a lot of going wrong with that, but also interestingly, uh, I just saw there's some companies that are using that kind of like, like with other ways that don't use GMOs <clears throat> that are made in factories that are, that are going to be, so it's, it's a bit of a all over the map. And I'm actually working with several young entrepreneurs that are creating certified organic plant-based fake seafood and, and fake pork. So I think you're going to start seeing some interesting things there. Yeah, I, I love what John is doing. I mean, he really keeps the conversation honest and he's able to find this kind of middle ground, if you will, where it's still vegetarian or vegan even, but, but it's, it's authentic. It's not just a front for more industrial fake food, deleterious fake food. But basically, when I hear cultured meat, the image that comes to mind is just frank frankenfood, which is high tech, high energy, horrifying. I mean, for me, honestly, I'm, I'm horrified by it. It's, it's, it's everything that's wrong with our narrative about food and health and, and the future. The one thing I would just say that the sad part is it's almost... There, there literally are thousands and thousands of, of young millennials and, and Gen Xers 
that have dedicated their, their career, they're investing, <clears throat> they're working for companies, creating a whole <clears throat> Franken food industrial food system. And then they're doing that because of, they've been radicalized <clears throat> from these films. <clears throat> and, and they have no interest in soil health. <clears throat> they have no interest in biodiversity. And when you ask them basic questions, they just say industrial agriculture is horrible. So, or, or industrial meat agriculture. So it's, it's a real challenge and they're working full-time, they're investing and, and they're creating a system that is destroying nature and they think they're doing the right thing. Yeah, I completely agree. I also find it very interesting that a lot of, a lot of the people who've kind of jumped onto this movement don't even really know what they're eating. Like, I, I won't lie, I may have eaten a Beyond Burger earlier this week, and, like, I don't know what's in that. I don't really understand what's in it, but I'm eating it anyways. So moving on to our next question, are large corporations like McDonald's and Pepsi jumping on a bandwagon to sell more products by implementing their own regenerative farms, or have they actually invested what is required to do so and yield effective results? Well, I would say that industrial this this regenerative movement there, there's we need a little more green and a little less green washing <clears throat> so the 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 reality is the supply chain is not there to supply regenerative ingredients <clears throat> at at today's the the demand it's growing and also the other challenge is is the source separation like there are people producing regenerative beef, but there's no processing facilities. So it's very hard to get. Uh, it's harder. You can get it, but it's just, it's not as easy. And sometimes it takes a year to schedule for a small rancher, a year to get to get line of processing. And so companies are making investments like General Mills is spending several million dollars a year educating farmers. But, but ironically, many of the people who come to the workshops are all men. Like, where, where, are, the, where are their partners or where are their wives? Um, and we need to get more women involved. That's one of the things I'd suggest. We need more women involved in, in, in food because of just the, the more nourishing view of, of reality versus men. And, but it's, it's a mixed bag, but some companies are jumping into it. But as I said, we need more green than, than the washing part. Yeah, I really like what John just said, more green and less green washing. You know, I mean, and, and the reality, of course, is that we are in a transition. And there'll be a mixture of all of the above. There'll be green washing and some legitimate efforts. I mean, McDonald's, these are major, major companies. Um, and they have huge you know, debt burdens and, and it's the industrial model of food. So there are, there are these two competing trends. One is just to get animals out of agriculture entirely. Just, just basically turn humans into livestock. You know, instead of giving it to the, the wheat and the corn to the animals, just give it to people and call it a burger, call it meat. And the other is to get more animals and to use them, use them in a way that restores soil. So it's, these are interesting times that we're in. And it's just important, from my point of view, that you just keep driving the conversation back to the soil. Well, are you actually improving the soil or not? Let's find out. Let's see where your food's coming from. Let's, do, let's take a soil sample. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's always really disappointing to think that you found a company or a product that is really sustainable or good for the earth. And then you realize that it was just their marketing and their greenwashing. So definitely agree with the less, less greenwashing, more green in general. As you said, John, this will probably be our final question. But do you guys support the growth in veganism and the driver plant alternatives? alongside cattle farming or just looking at regenerative ranching? I would say we have little time to waste. We need to regenerate, whether it's plant-based or animal-based, let's regenerate. And, and the sooner we can grok that versus fighting one versus the other, 
the, the better off we, we will be. I have plenty of friends of mine who are, who are vegan, who support regenerative agriculture, inclu- including holistic grazing for those who want to eat meat. And they, they, because they're actually smart enough to know they, they don't want glyphosate in their vegetables. So if, and, and so that's, that's really important for us to do that. Right. And, and the question itself implies a, a bifurcation, a, a dichotomy, right? So let's even, let's even not phrase questions that way. Let's talk about creating food in a way that restores soil. And if it happens to be nut trees with a mixture of, of crops and legumes, great. Now, eventually, though, you will need some grazing to come in, maybe even just once a year, even once every other year. You are going to have to get animals involved somehow. But it's not just like it's either a field of soy or pea for impossible burgers or beyond burgers, or it's a, it's a perennial grassland with grazing. It's not just one or the other. We can mix these things together. But again, the arbitrator will be the soil. Are you improving it or not? I know there was a question someone posted about Mexico. I just saw an amazing regenerative agriculture and agroforestry in Mexico. I will be posting it on my LinkedIn. That's a good way for people to follow me on LinkedIn or or Facebook. And um, we're planting 500,000 trees and a food forest in Guatemala. And we're also working in Malawi and Kenya and Uganda. So um, planting trees with farmers that both fix nitrogen and grow crops is a great way to go. Great. Yes, definitely John and Seth on LinkedIn, because I know you guys post a lot of very interesting articles. And we will also, I think we've already sent it in the chat, but we have sent resources relating to Seth and John's work. So thank you all for listening to this great discussion. And especially we want to thank Seth and John for joining us and sharing their expertise on regenerative agriculture and ranching. And yeah, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. This has been a great, great session. John and I do lots of sessions, of course, online, but but having this be sort of youth moderated and directed really is inspiring. You get the sense it's not just more talking heads on Zoom. Maybe something good will really come out of it. So thank you for what you're doing, really. You're the future and we appreciate it. Yeah, it's been so amazing and inspiring being able to talk to you today. I know I'm really interested in agriculture as well as Sophia is. So it's super cool to hear all of what I could be doing in the future and where I should be headed. So thank you a lot. Thank Thank you you for, thank you for, again, for inviting us and and the next generation. We've made a big mess, the boomers and and, uh, we're, Seth and I are trying to make up for our, for our F-ups of ourselves and our generation. And and we're hoping to, to pass on the baton to the next generation. You're going to have to get more radical. And all I would just tell everybody is the change may come after the collapse. So be prepared for an ecological and economic uh, very hard times going forward. Know where your food is, where your, your water is, and, and fight and work as hard as you can to, to change the system. The, the system will not go easily in the night as the incumbents. Okay, everyone. Well, on that uplifting note. <laughs> All right. Take care. I love you all. Bye.